Welcome to Southern Discomfort. This is one of the most unique podcasts on the internet. Southern tales of the weird, wild, mysterious, unusual, voodoo, Voodoo. cryptids, hauntings. Are you intrigued yet? This is Southern Discomfort. Southern Discomfort. And now, your hosts, April and Christine. Hey everybody, welcome if you are just now joining us, and if you're not, then welcome back. And thank you guys so much for bearing with us and being patient as we had issues to work out, but we're back, so here we are. Happy 2022. Yes, yay. So we want, um, we won't take too long with a welcome, but um, yeah, we didn't go Yeah, let's... uh... Remind everybody about our socials um, and get uncomfortable. Yeah. So, um, Twitter is so disco PC. Um, Instagram Southern Discomfort PC. Facebook Southern Discomfort Podcast. YouTube Southern Discomfort Podcast. And always feel free to. Email us at Southern Discomfort Podcast at gmail.com. Um, and if you like what you hear, even if you don't, but hopefully you do like what you hear and would be willing to give us a review and five stars. Yeah. So without further ado, what is the drink du jour? Yeah. Thank you for that, Christine. So tonight on tap, we have Drive Through Tiger Blood. So this is from Parish Brewing Company, and it's daiquiri-style Berliner, and I'm pretty sure I said that right because I am of German descent, and you are as well, so there we go. But we've got a Berliner Weiss. It is a, um, it's fruity. This is so yummy. It is, has coconut, strawberry, and watermelon flavors, crystal hops, and it's described as creamy, fruity, and tropical. So um, I'll just read what they have on their website because it's cute. So the drive-through daiquiri shops, um, it's the third in their the the third installment of this series, and it packs a lush fruit-driven punch with extremely saturated waves of watermelon and strawberry and a splash of coconut. This thick snowball-style sour roars with red jammy fruit syrup into a high ABV slush. It's very delicious. I will say this. The packaging is absolutely adorable. It has a picture of a tiger blood, which is traditionally red. The tiger blood daiquiri, that is. And it tastes like it. It tastes like a tiger blood daiquiri, I will say. And Oh, it's so yummy. So they come in pints, a four-pack. And it is also cute on the side. They have the straw with the paper covering on the top third of it and um everyone who knows knows that that means that that is not open container (laughs) you leave that piece of paper at the top so yeah if you know you know but it's very yummy for that just that thin covering keeps it for being absolutely absolutely so this one is very yummy you see like i said you even said it was yummy 
Yeah, it is. And I was going to also mention the cute packaging, but it, um, I don't know that I could drink a whole one, but I did enjoy it very much. So (laughs) highly recommend. Yeah. So real quick before we get started, this episode is intended for educational purposes and it, the content contains themes and subject matter that some individual may consider triggering and offensive and possibly disturbing. But as always, the intent is not to disrespect anyone, including the listeners or any individual spoken about herein. And listener discretion, as always, is advised. So I just want to get started with a question for you, Christine. If, okay. okay, so I know you already know the answer to this question, but... If before we started looking into this, if I would have asked you, we go back in time and I would ask you, what's the largest maximum security prison in the U.S., what would you have said? Okay, so I definitely would have said Rikers Island. Yeah, that's amazing because you can tell we of the same DNA because I would have said the same thing too. And we've never talked about this before. That's crazy. No, never. So uh, we would both be wrong. Because the Louisiana State Penitentiary is is the largest maximum security prison in the United States, and so right, and that was I was really surprised to, to learn that. I mean, right, having known about it pretty much our whole lives, like you think that we would just automatically somewhere along the way have learned that it was, but I obviously didn't. Right, absolutely, it has. 6,300 prisoners and 1,800 staff. And so Louisiana State Penitentiary is known in this area and all throughout Louisiana, of course, as Angola. It has the nicknames of Alcatraz of the South, the Angola Plantation, a gated community, and the farm. So I have heard of all those, and I'm sure you have too. Yeah, I think the one that I had not ever heard, which I found to be like, I mean, not really an oxymoron. I don't know if that's what you call it or not, but like the gated community, I had never heard that. But, you know, I mean, obviously we'll get into it, but it just, I guess not oxymoron, it's ironic, I guess, right? that they would refer to it as a gated community. And we'll get into that. The 18,000-acre prison property occupies a 28-square-mile area. It's larger than the size of Manhattan, to put it into perspective. I've never been to Manhattan. I know you have. But maybe you can, like, fill us in (laughs) how big of an area that is for a prison, right? Right. Well, I mean, you know, if you think Manhattan's not that big of an island necessarily, but it's so densely populated. So when I read that, I was like, okay, I guess land mass wise, we're talking, um, it's bigger than Manhattan, which is a little bit mind blowing. Um, having, having seen that, um, I think, what really resonated with me too was like looking at aerial photos of um, Angola. Yeah, that is um, it's it's absolutely impressive. Um, but I know you'll talk about the topography too, but it, it's very impressive. Yeah, so it's located in West Feliciana Parish. This is the uh, con- this is the one that's directly 
connected to the parish where I'm in, um, very close to, to where I am, actually. So it's set between Oxbow Lakes on the east side of a bend in the Mississippi River. So it's surrounded on three sides by water. And also it's up in the Tunica Hills, which um, for uh, Louisiana, it's you mentioned topography. Actually, that they have hills at all um, is pretty <laughs> It's pretty impressive. Most of it is low-lying and flat. Um, exactly. And, yeah, and I've heard that, um, and I surprisingly haven't been in the Tunica Hills, but they have these cool waterfalls and hiking trails. But um, anyway, uh, that's just a little side note. So the perimeter of the property is not fenced, but um, individual prisoner dormitories and recreational camps, those are fenced. But that's why... Um, they're not because it is surrounded by water on all the, you know three sides. So essentially, it's it's got natural barriers, I guess. Right, that's where the Alcatraz of the South that nickname comes into play too. Um, and, yeah, right. So, I, that never clicked until just now. Okay, now I get it. Oh my god. Yeah. So it's very like I said, it's very close to the, or maybe I didn't, but it's very close to the Mississippi state line, and it lies two miles south of the Mississippi state line. It sits at the end of Highway sixty six. This is around twenty two miles northwest of St. Francisville, Louisiana. Um and. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard of the allegedly haunted plantation, the Myrtles. This is also in St. Francisville um, in the Tunica Hills area, well, close to the Tunica Hills. Um, then I mentioned they have the waterfall. So I was just thinking, like, not not that um, that anybody paid for this, but I was thinking this could be like a little destination trip if you wanted to, <laughs> I don't know, see. Tour the the prison. I, mean, or, I think there's people that would be very much into that. Like I think anybody who's into um, the paranormal would be would would be familiar at least with the name of the Myrtles. And then you're right, you could weave this that into also um, a trip to see the prison, which. You know, I didn't grow up in, well, we didn't grow up in Louisiana and go to high school and whatnot in Louisiana, but I have friends who this was actually their destination on their field trip growing up in school. I've heard of that. Because they do have a museum there. Um, (laughs) They do. So, like you said, education. Right. And then you can even go on a trip to the Tuna Kills. I don't know. So, there's a thought. But, um... (laughs) Yeah, so um, it's extremely remote. It's one long road in and out of the property. And so the name that Angola, this is named for the country in Africa from which uh, the slaves um, had come because this is actually, uh, the property was Angola Plantation. And also um, that comes into play, the whole how they set that up too as well. Um, the plantation because it's surrounding and we talked about it being in the bend of the river and the oxbow lakes around it so that was like you said the natural barrier so um but uh we'll get into this so isaac franklin he was an american slave trader and plantation owner and he was not actually from louisiana he was from the virginia area 
So um, his widow eventually sold the Louisiana plantations in 1880 to Samuel Lawrence James, a former Confederate major. And so um, one of the histories of uh, southern prisons, and, and certainly Louisiana was no exception, was the convict lease system. And what this was, um, I think Kentucky was one of the first to, to adopt this practice and Louisiana followed. So in 1844, Louisiana leased prison, they leased the prison inmates for out for labor. They did this to save money. I mean, it's kind of a smart business move. From a bit, right, from the business move, of course. So um, they leased the inmates out for levy construction. Um, however, yeah, so you say the smart, right, a business move, but also at the same time, it was very <sighs> diabolical. It was pretty atrocious. Oh, well. yeah. Like, <laughs> right. The, like, the right. impact to the human collateral right, is right. diabolical. Right. Yeah. So, because this work, the levy construction work was so dangerous that they didn't even want the, uh, the plantation owners didn't want to allow their slaves to do this levy construction. Because they were valuable to the plantation owners, and they didn't want to lose them because to death or to any harsh conditions or them being overworked or injured. Yeah, so if that tells you anything. Um, so in 1916, Henry Fuqua became the warden of the Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola in West Feliciana Parish. This is north of Baton Rouge, like we talked about. And he held the position until he became governor. As a warden, he terminated most of the security officers at the penitentiary, and instead he placed trusted inmate guards on duty. This was uh, primarily to save money, as we said, because, you know, that's what they were into back then. I guess that's always been in vogue, right? Everybody wants to save yeah. money. <laughs> so um, he did abolish the stripes on the convict uniform. So there was a great flood in Louisiana, in 1922, and this ruined the crops of numerous plantations, um, including Angola and surrounding them. This is uh, this happened to be for the third time in nearly a decade. So they sold the land to expand the prison in a series of eight purchases over 18 months. And Fuqua arranged the purchase of 10,000 acres and approximately $13 an acre. Oh, my God, that's amazing. $13 I mean, it's acre. like feeling it right i mean i'm sure even back then that was a lot of money but wow well that's true i'm thinking in terms of like yeah the value today but sounds like at, mon- at any rate sounds like monopoly money like 13 dollars an acre yeah let's buy up eighteen thousand acres which is what they brought the prison to its present size the eighteen thousand by this transaction yeah. so um fuqua is remembered for his um interest in the levy and road construction but also for his fight against the resurgent Ku Klux Klan. And so back then, that was pretty amazing. I, I just can't even imagine what he, the pushback that he got for even fighting against yeah, that. Yeah, you know? because I would imagine that was not popular with his constituents at that time. Right. Yeah. In South Louisiana. Or Louisiana at all. Absolutely. Right. So during Fuqua's time in the governor's mansion, Louisiana's anti-KKK laws imposed harsh penalties 
upon anyone wearing a mask or anyone committing a crime while masked. There and there are except this. These are laws that are still on the books, um, but there are exceptions. This one would have wanted to point this out. This is uh, they make exception for the celebration of Mardi Gras. So they're still on the on the books today, and also it's kind of relevant now to COVID times because there are people who are yeah. to point out. Well, you know, it is illegal in Louisiana to wear a mask. <laughs> and, I mean, they can try that. Yeah, right. <laughs> right, but that's why I want to point that out because that's, yeah. This, no, it's very interesting. I had, I didn't know that. Right. I have heard that. I've heard a couple of people say that. But So, Fuqua also increased the budget for his alma mater, LSU, Louisiana State University. So tight, though. Yes, and this was to construct more buildings on the new campus in southern in um, southern Baton Rouge, but he also supported the expansion of the African American Institution of Higher Education, Southern University in Baton Rouge, which I feel like doesn't get as much notoriety outside of Louisiana, but Southern University is pretty amazing as well. Yeah, that's that's really important. Um... For the state, but I mean, not only the state, but you know, the country too. I guess that is very little known fact. Yeah, it's in the world of HBCU that it's it's a really it's a good, very outstanding school. So also, there's still a Fuqua Street in Baton Rouge, and now you yes, know. there is. Now you know. So, okay, so we'll get into this a little bit of history. So, before 1835, state inmates were held in New Orleans jail, and uh, which which really in around that time, if you think about it, uh, that's New Orleans was where everything in the, sta- the uh, state was. Right. That, that was the go-to city. It was just, it was. Well, and it still is synonymous with Louisiana now right and that was the higher highest concentration of of people in it population yes and um so it was horrid and it was only fit for animals as um most people i don't i wouldn't say recall but as it's been documented at that time even it was known as the worst prison in the u.s So, Louisiana State Penitentiary had been named the worst prison in both the 19th and 20th centuries. Mm. Yeah, so first in 1831 by Alex de Tocqueville, and then again by Collier's Magazine in 1952. Don't come for me for my French. I'm sorry. (laughs) I mean, I think you did a good job with that, because I've always said Tocqueville. Right, (laughs) So, originally, it was a jail, but first, the Louisiana State Penitentiary located at the intersection of 6th and Laurel Streets in Baton Rouge. It was uh, modeled on a prison in Connecticut. So, it was built to house 100 convicts in cells of 6 by 3 feet. That's so tiny. I'm not saying that they should have palatial spacing, but... If you what like six feet, if you were taller than six feet, how would you even lay down? Well, you couldn't, right? 
<laughs> not comfortably for sure. So, um, in the antebellum South, penitentiaries were composed mostly of white inmates, and this was because slaves that committed crimes were sentenced by their owners. And at that time, prisons were considered lower than slaves because they were expendable and replaceable at no cost to the state. And see, at this time, too, children were born in prison. They were born to inmates, and then they were sold at auction when they turned 10 years old. Yeah, that's so sad. I know. That's so sad to think about those those kids. So in 1844, Louisiana legislature authorized convict leasing, which we described earlier. And then in uh, 1865, after the Civil War, well... Yeah, after the Civil War. Louisiana passed a series of laws called Code Noir, the New Black Code. And this was designed to drive former slaves back to their home plantations. The laws criminalized free black men who could not provide written proof of employment. And this classified them as vagrants who were jailed and hired out to anyone. Often their former owner would pay off their fines. So then that would send them back to mm-hmm. the plantation. Yeah, so it's like... I don't it's just a cycle... Right, um, because the after the Civil War, they had lost their workforce at these plantations, so that was a way that they thought, I guess, they were being clever. We'll find a workaround to, like, just feed them back in. So the Act 12 of 1865, this doubled the punishment for vagrancy to one year and made it clear that local authorities could hire out that person to an employer for the year. It specifically stated that they were to be hired out to the last person for whom he worked. So you see what I was getting at here. Well, I mean, it's like a prison inside of a prison. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So by 1886, death at Angola was so commonplace, it was estimated that a sentence of seven years was equivalent to a capital punishment, basically. Oh, geez. Right. So women also were in prison at Angola, and they worked the fields and in laundry. Go figure. Mm-hmm. Why you going to put the women in charge of laundry? <laughs> Come on now. Don't even say anything about being in the kitchen. <laughs> so the state of Louisiana purchased Angola in 1901. Angola was a brutal place to be. In 1916, a report indicated that prisoners in Louisiana were subjected to illegal and barbarous corporal punishments. What does that mean? Well, they were they were torturing them. They were Ugh. brutally torturing them. I mean, I guess I guess, I guess it's rhetorical, but I'm just thinking barbarous like that pretty severe yes that is so um and brutality flourished in these louisiana prisons because prisoners policed the prisoners so one of the we talked about them saving money one of the ways that the state saved money was to use prisoners to do all the work of the prison including guarding other prisoners and at one point there were only 19 non-inmate guards to more than 2,000 prisoners I think, I, yeah, go ahead. How does, that, how does that work exactly when you have the prisoners guarding the prisoners? Is that like, is that equivalent to the trustee 
like modern trustee system. I don't really. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, so, and also, I think of the Stanford experiment when I think oh, of that. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because that right. would probably go to their head, or maybe they would think that, oh, if I do a good job at being a prison guard, even though I'm a prisoner, maybe they might treat me better. You know, the real yes, guards. That's a good point. Right. I mean, I, I don't know. I didn't come across that, but I can't, that's, I can't help but think of the, the that experiment. So um, he asked about barbarous and illegal corporal punishment. So by 1900, flogging was the preferred method of discipline mm, in these okay. prisons. Right. And they reported, the prison officials reported that at least 10,000 floggings of prisoners, some of which consisted of 50 lashes each, and this was between 1928 and 1940. And then uh, um, also in 1933 alone, there were 1,547 floggings reported in the files, this, which included 23,889 recorded blows of the double lash. And women prisoners also suffered this brutality. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a pretty detailed report. So um, they just sat there and, like picked off how many lashes yeah they did and and look they weren't even they didn't even think twice they just re- recorded this i mean but what so the first thing that comes into my mind is like okay well why did they need to know that metric like yeah and, and, it, yeah yeah i mean that's just nuts the other thing that comes to my mind is that's what was reported because, well, right, so that's not necessarily how many were doled out. That's how many were recorded. Right, yeah, you just have to think they didn't capture all of that. So. Oh, God, that is horrific. So, yes, so from 1935 to 1973, one of the worst places to be in Angola was the Red Hat Cell Block. This was Ang- Angola's Supermax. Authorities built the Red Hat cell block in 1935 in response to a series of escapes in the early 1930s, including one big prison break in 1933 during which two guards were killed. As a result, the Red Hat cell block was built in 1935, and it was a building of 40 tiny cells built of concrete set aside for prisoners deemed incorrigible. So, like I said earlier, these prisoners lived in cells six feet long and three feet wide, sometimes several to a cell. Yeah, uh-uh. yeah. Not only did you, if you were pretty tall, you didn't have a, hardly enough room to sleep, but you were in there with other people. So they were required. Can you imagine, like communicable when communicable disease? Oh yeah, you know, hit hit. That that probably has to do with the mortality rate too. I mean, whenever you mention that earlier those numbers around like the mortality rate how it's considered to be like a death sentence if you got um what seven years it probably had to do with like those conditions too oh yeah absolutely absolutely had to and they were required to wear felt tip hats dipped in red enamel when they left their cells and this was this this place housed the escape risks and the prisoners considered most dangerous, so that's why they called hmm. it the Red Hat Cell Block. Um, yeah, so that was more to um, 
I can only imagine that was to like you know uh, to let them stand out. You know, they have to wear their red hat. So we're like, okay, we can easily identify that this person is either very dangerous or an escape risk. Yeah, symbolic, I guess. Right. So by the 1940s, brutality and abysmal conditions in Angola were widely known to the government and the public. Reports about the prison have been circulated and flogging on a scale just short of torture and the lack of education and rehabilitation were reported, but these reports were ignored. Of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Because it was very remote, like we said, so out of sight, out of mind. Right, and nobody knew they were there, much less what was happening. Right. Absolutely. So... The heel slashing of 1951, um, that is another um, topic of brutality, but it was an interesting um, reverse of sorts. So on February 26, 1951, several prisoners had slashed the tendons of their heels in order to avoid the hard work in the fields and further punishment. Um, 18 prisoners were hospitalized for slashing their own tendons with razor blades to avoid these beating, to avoid beating the brutal conditions. Okay. Um, yeah. I'm just going to stop you right there because how bad does it, it would have to be in order to slash your own tendon. Yeah. Like, exactly. That's, that's my thought is, okay, if it's better to self-inflict this kind of brutality, then it, you know, it must have been just unbearable. It yeah. had to have been unbearable. Absolutely. <sighs> okay. And we're, a report a day later put the number at 31 prisoners who had slashed their tendons, at which point an independent investigation was called for. And most of the prisoners had served weeks or months in the red hat solitary confinement cells you were talking about. Yeah. Uh, within days, another six slashed their tendons, and the governor of Louisiana decided to appoint a special committee to investigate the conditions at Angola. Oh, yeah. So that's, that's what it took, basically. <laughs> yeah, like, to, oh, every, and then, it, that's something that you got to be committed to, also, if you're in a protest, and you're going to get a group together, oh, God, you're like, okay, we're going to slash our tendons. Yeah, like, how do you get everybody in on that? Right. Like, there must have been some sort of, like, you know, okay, well, either, like, there had to have been coercion, right? Yeah. Or, or I can't say there had to have been. I would have to imagine that there was some level of coercion internally amongst them because they would be like, okay, we're all doing this, and if you don't, yeah, you know, then who knows what else would have happened. That's just... Right. Just... One theory. The, having to psych yourself up to do that, I can't even imagine. I can't. I can't. I'm such a ninny baby when it comes to like, oh my, my God, finger. I have a zero tolerance for pain, much less the sight of blood, much right. less Doing it taking a razor to, no, I mean, it's, it's for me, it's 
unimaginable. But being in that situation, of course, I cannot speak on that because I would not, you know, have experienced it. Also, I just thought of this. I can't even imagine that they would have had sterile razor blades to do it. They probably had some crude form of something that would cut them with. Oh. Right. Some rusted of, probably like uh, oh. yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway, we're going down a we're going down a path here. <laughs> well, because you really could just extract that piece and you could really do a deeper dive into that the psyche and yeah um so it's you know anyway it, it, i think it would be worthwhile but not for purposes of the story we're telling today but um so this committee discovered that conditions at angola um through powerful explosive and damning testimony provided um by an unimpeachable source, um, Miss Mary Margaret Daughtry, an Irish nurse employed at Angola, um, she told the committee that Angola was, quote, a sewer of degradation and still in the dark ages. Men lived in huge dorm- dorms that were filthy and stinky, which to me sounds like an understatement. Right. Um, disease, I'm sure they were disease infested yes um she testified about sexual abuse of new prisoners beatings and whippings um and again to quote of the nearly seven thousand men discharged from the penitentiary since she was employed there she said she never saw one who was um as qualified to enter society as he was the day he was admitted and that it was the true brutality of Angola. I mean, that's that's <laughs> a powerful statement right there. Because that's not what the, the prisons, at least in modern um, view, is, or goal, I should say. It should be about rehabilitation. And Well, right. Um, I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's these um, subhuman conditions and treatments that make it make it something out of the dark ages, exactly what she said. Yes. Oh. Um, she further said there were no doctors that she performed the surgeries, administered shots, stitched up the wounds, and even delivered babies um, of women prisoners. Um. She testified and then resigned from Angola, um, providing later explanation that she told the truth, despite the fact that the warden insisted that she lie and tried to bribe her, in addition to a threat from the local sheriff to prosecute her. Okay. So, so first of all, you try to say she lied, and then you try to bribe her. Okay. So... I mean, they were basically just throwing everything right, at it, right? Right. right. Yeah. Which is, I mean, can, can you imagine being a woman at that time and using your voice to, um, for injustice? And 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 at that time, you know, she was right. because you know it was made some progress, but it won't get into that, right? Um. No, so she's the my committee hero. also, 
well, right. I mean, to have been brave enough to at least, at least get the information out there. Um, and the committee also heard reports of whippings uh, by guards. But I mean, yeah, when you look at, I mean, not to diminish that. I mean, but it, it, you can, you can only imagine that that would be commonplace, right? And um, the physical punishment described by the committee was medieval, referencing one of the most pathetic victims being a 61-year-old man who had been lashed with a leather strap 15 or 20 times until he was unconscious. Mm. Mm. <laughs> this, this reminds me of the scene from oh, the, the Jesus movie. No oh, the scourge. Yeah, it, it does remind you of the scourge. Mm. I mean, it, it's just, I mean, it, like to say the word horrific in this context doesn't even do it justice. Not at all. No. So there were windowless confinements as small as a closet that held as many as seven men. Um,. It was recommended in 1951 um, to abolish corporal punishment and solitary confinement in dungeons and establish rehab programs. Oh, so now you want to initiate rehabilitation after a barbaric tactics don't work, I guess. Right. Or not the. I mean, obviously, I doubt that they work, but now that it's been exposed, I guess I should say. Collier's Magazine named Angola America's worst prison in 1952 because the problems remained extreme. What this did was put a spotlight on Angola for the nation and the world to see. There were 2,640 prisoners um, treated as beasts. From sunup to sundown, typically 12 hours a day, whippings, dungeon punishment, only bread and water, frequent sexual assaults, and dorms of 250 men sharing four toilets without seats. Oh, my gosh. Wow. On December 5th, 1956, five men escaped by digging out of the prison grounds and swimming across the Mississippi River. They were Robert Wallace, 25 years old, Wallace McDonald, 23 years old, Vernon Roy Ingram, 21 years old, Glenn Holiday, 20 years old, and Frank Bourbon Gann, 30 years old. McDonald was captured later in Texas after returning to the United States from Mexico. He said that two of his fellow escapees drowned, but this was disputed by Warden Maurice Sigler. Um, Sigler said that he believed that only one inmate drowned because they found three clear sets of footprints climbing up the riverbank. It was reported that one body, believed to be Wallace, was recovered from the river. And this was the Mississippi River, okay? This is not yeah. something that you, at the, the end of the Mississippi River, not something you just go take a swim at. A lot of people who fall in or go in, end up, end up in the river, they don't come out. 
Exactly. Like, I mean, I don't know the dimensions, like, off the top of my head, but, um, you know, I, I would venture to say that I would never make it across. Oh, no, you, most people don't. Like, you just, they're like, swim across the Mississippi River and no, not down here. I don't know. There might be smaller, more narrow places, but the undertoes, like the current, is outrageous. Well, but that also speaks to, you know, how severe the conditions were. They would rather risk their lives in that body of water than stay. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, in the 1960s, Angola was called the bloodiest prison in the South. This was because of the excessive number of inmate assaults with no reform. Prison weight was extensive at this or during this time at Angola. Mm. Yeah. Wil- Wilbert Redu, a prison journalist, wrote an extensive description of rapes and the culture of rape at Angola in the 1970s, um, usually described as homosexual relations instead of rape. Um, rape is common at prisons filled with men at the peak of sexual energy where inmates on inmate violence is either tolerated or a- unable to be prevented. The new and the powerless inmates were immediately raped and forced to assume the subservient role of wife to powerful inmates. Weaker inmates were routinely forced into slavery to powerful and violent inmates and security officials, some for sex and still others for service. Mm. That's, yeah, that's so, like, that's one point I didn't think of is these men are coming in at, when they, the, when you said they were coming in at the peak of their sexuality. And then you're just, you're in there with other men. Like, I just, I don't even know what, I can't even imagine. Well, and that's, you know, the culture of rape. And oftentimes, like, it's not even about sexual attraction. It's more dominant. Right. You know, you know, under other conditions, they would never engage in homosexual activity, um, but but like you said, it's that you know you're with the same sex, but also you know, not even it could not even be about like a preference or attraction, more about like a behavior that dominates another person. Right, and that's something that I've heard, but I just I've not I don't even have the I just will never understand that because I'm not a man. Right. And I couldn't, I could never understand that either. But, and also, I mean, I think, you know, this is a bit tangential, but, you know, and they probably, we could do another episode on prison culture itself, but, you know, it happens with women too. Right. Um, But at any rate, um, the inmates lived in a world in which the strong survived and the weak served or perished it was it was either or there was nothing else yeah human life had no value in angola 
young prisoners were gang raped and those who weren't were beaten into submission uh, by gangs. The strong controlled the weak and new inmates entering the prison had to pass a test of violence to determine the status they would have. Um, would they in the community would they be a man or would they be a slave and the younger slaves served as effeminate homosexuals while the older slaves served as servants so there again it's the whole power position yes you you get a you get beat down and or death you die or you just have to acquiesce or you had to fight every day out of it. I mean, yeah, now you're... Survival. Yeah, now you're really painting the picture of um, why you might want to slash your own tendons. Exactly. You can, you can, as much as we cannot imagine it being so bad that you would want to self-harm like that, you can start to see... The you know how one's psyche is is gets around to that notion. Hey, this this might even be better than than the alternative. Yeah, yeah. Oh gosh, or swim the Mississippi so, River. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, un, there again, I just I can't even fathom. In the 1970s, it was described as medieval wallet and horrifying. In 1991, the United States Department of Justice found its medical care grossly inadequate. Purportedly, Louisiana has incarcerated more of its people than any state in the country. Yeah, I read that and I was, wow, I was blown away. Like, congratulations, Louisiana. Right, because if I'm not mistaken, the United States is the number one jailer in the world. And so when you look at it um, through that lens, it's like, wow, okay, we are number one, the the country's, or at least were, the country's number one jailer. Right, yes. So... In 1971, a team of three lawyers from the American Bar Association, the nation's largest organization of lawyers, visited Angola as part of a nationwide tour of prisons. Later reports described portions of the prison, again, as squalid, medieval, and horrifying. The population of Angola continued to expand in the 1970s. As the Louisiana legislature passed dozens of laws increasing jail time, the parole board was releasing far fewer people, and the public continued to support putting more people in jail. This led to um, dramatic growth in prisoners in the United States and Louisiana. Nationwide, the rate of incarcerated people in the United States nearly doubled between 1925 and 1980, which I guess ties back to what I was saying about the U.S. being right world's number one jailer. So that just those those numbers really put things into perspective. And that is going to wrap up our part one. Please join us next time for part two 
of Angola. And remember to keep one eye open because you never know what you might see. You've been listening to Southern Discomfort with April and Christine. As you can tell, this is one of the most unique podcasts on the internet. So we want you to be able to reach out to us. Send emails to Southern Discomfort Podcast at gmail.com. On Facebook at Southern Discomfort Podcast. And on Instagram at Southern Discomfort PC. And for shows, visit Southern Discomfort.podbean.com. And this podcast can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. Till next time, keep one eye open because you never know what you might see. This is Southern Discomfort. Signing off. At the penitentiary, and instead he placed it. What kind of, I don't know what kind of words placed it, but. (laughs) I'm very highly educated. I know words. I have the best words. (laughs) He's did. He placed it there. I'm telling you. Okay. Not, not many people know that word, but, you know, <laughs> since we're, like, going back in time, using the vernacular of the time. <laughs> you you could not be more wrong. Where was I? <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to pee on myself. Okay. You stay classy, America. Like, Shit, I was doing good, too, anyway. You are doing very good. Thank you. Um. Uh, he terminated. Is that what I was trying to say? Let's see. Yeah, okay. That's one as warden. Okay, we're gonna go back there. And three, two, including one big prison bait. Whoa, 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 whoa. What's a prison bait? What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard.